0: John Bradford was a Christian who lived uh, in the 1500s in England. He labored to bring about reform in that country of England in the mid-1500s. John Bradford wanted to bring more confidence to God's people about what the gospel was, and he wanted to bring more confidence to helping people apply that gospel. He once wrote, for instance, to those fearing death, quote, As you are not afraid to enter your bed to sleep, so do not be afraid to die. This is also the man that coined the phrase, There but for the grace of God go I, when he saw a prisoner being taken away. And it was this very same John Bradford that was taken prisoner himself during the reign of the bloody Mary, who sought to quiet the evangelical voice in mid-1500s of England. Because John Bradford believed that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he was made to be burned at the stake. On that day, January the 31st, 1555, he had another martyr beloved brother with him named John Leaf. And as they were being tied to the stake that day, these two fellow lovers of the true gospel, John Bradford leaned over to John Leaf and said, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. It was later said of him that he endured the flame, quote, as a fresh gale of wind on a hot summer day. And I asked the question, how do you get there? How does one admit such tragedy, see such beauty? such hope? How does one have confidence in the gospel when everything seems lost? Well, friends, the answer to that question will be the most important information you're ever given. And it is my intention to share with you that answer this morning. If you are suffering from crippling anxiety or depression, if you're suffering from people-pleasing or if you're suffering from cultural relevance such that cultural uh, relevance has you by the neck, I invite you to come and see that seeing is not believing, but instead believing is seeing. You'll see that as we move through these passages in Kings this morning, we as a church have been walking through this book of Kings. If you're new, welcome again. Uh, We have been walking through the book of Kings. We started last fall, and we're walking right through. That's the practice of our church Christ is the authority, not me. Uh, His word is the way in which he works out his authority. And so what we do at our church is we just walk right through the passages, even and especially when they're a little uncomfortable and strange, as we'll see today. So you can find uh, our passage, 2 Kings. We'll be looking at 2 Kings 6 to 8, the middle of chapter 8. It's on page 312 of the Bibles that are in front of the chairs in front of you. We've been seeing as we've been walking through the book of Kings, we've been seeing three things. We've been seeing that the Lord is king, that he rules through his word uh, by his prophets. We've been seeing the Lord is king. His word is more powerful than the kings of the earth. Secondly, we've been seeing that we are to worship him and him alone to the book of Kings. He will not share his glory with another. And a third thing that we've been seeing is God is bringing about his promise to have a king in the line of David that will rule forever. And we keep singing king after king, and he is not the king. We keep looking for another one. And so the reality is, friends, even those three things that I just shared with you, even in the world today, most people do not see the world that way. They do not see the Lord as king. Uh, They do not see that uh, uh, God is, through his gospel, bringing about his purposes. Most people don't see that. Most people don't believe that. Many people sort of maybe take pieces and parts of that, but think we've kind of rejected and we kind of need to progress uh, beyond religion. But for those of us that have been given eyes to see, we believe and live confidently because, again, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. That's the big idea this morning. And when I mention that phrase, what I'm saying is, is we believe the power of the gospel. We believe the truth of God's word. Therefore, we see its reality out in the world. That's what I mean when I say that. We believe the truth. Therefore, we see the world in light of that. That brings us to. Chapter 6 of 2 Kings. We've been following the ministry of Elisha. Uh, The ministry of double portion continues through his ministry. Uh, In verses 1 to 7, if you see in chapter 6, we learn of still another of Elisha's miracles. Outside of Christ himself, there is no greater miracle in all the Bible than Elisha. He has facilitated, we'll go on to facilitate some 16 miracles, which of course is doubling the eight miracles of his predecessor, Elijah. And so therefore, we see his double portion. But here in this passage, verses 1 to 7, we we see here that these friends have gone off to construct a new house. They want a a bigger house, a nicer house, and they move alongside a body of water, and they're constructing that new house. When one of them takes an axe, swings it upon a piece of wood, the axe head flies off into a body of water, and so they're distraught because the axe is borrowed. They don't know what to do. They want this axe back. Elisha in verse 6 says, well, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. And so he reached out his hand and took it. Friends, God is a transcendent God. Therefore, since he exists outside of nature, God very easily can do super nature. It's not hard for him. Through his people, that is, he is able to bring about miracles, miracles like this one. And what these miracles and all miracles of the Bible are doing are at least three things. Miracles first testify to the glory of God. Miracles testify to the glory of God, that he's altogether awesome, that he's awe-inspiring, that he's wonderful, that he's spectacular, that he's transcendent, operating outside of space and time. Miracles testify to the glory of God. Miracles also testify to God's authority over the world. So he can raise, in other words, he can raise an axe head from the bottom of a lake. He can raise a man from the dead. Miracles reveal to us that God rules over the machinations of man. He's not limited in the same ways that we are. God is not limited. He is infinite. He is powerful because he is the one that is king. He doesn't have to submit to gravity, in other words, if he needs to overcome that. But finally, miracles testify to the authenticity of ministers and their messages. Miracles oftentimes testify to the authenticity of His ministers, God's ministers, and their messages. So I like to think of miracles sort of like that Major League Baseball sticker that is stuck on the ball to verify it's used in a game, right? Or a passport that validates. Uh, Someone really is a citizen of that country. Or uh, miracles are sort of like that FBI badge that validates the authority of the FBI agent. Miracles are saying to the community around them, this ministry and message are God's ministry and message. They are a kind of authenticators. And that is in opposition, by the way, to prophets of other false gods like those of Baal who sit on top of Mount Carmel and no matter how much religiosity they have, their god cannot speak. They cannot do a miracle because they're dead. They don't Exist In our time, God has provided the greatest miracle of all in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, out in public for all to see. And from that resurrection, he has birthed a church that advances undeterred around the world. But here in the ministry of Elisha, we are provided with yet another reason to trust his ministry and his message. We see God's purposes and promises marching on amidst the darkness that Elisha is living in. And so it's with confidence that the author puts these words down here so as to trust Elisha's ministry and Elisha's word, that he is submitting to God and his word. And we see a powerful testimony of Elisha's believing by seeing in what comes next in verse 8 to 23. In verses 8 to 10, we read about how the king of Syria plans against Israel. Uh, His plans keep getting found out. The king of Syria working against Israel uh, they His plans keep getting found out, and that's because Elisha is given knowledge of them. So this obviously leads to frustration to the king of Syria. Every time he begins to make a plan, then something else happens where Israel gets out of the way. And of course, the king of Syria thinks there's a spy in his midst, which is probably what most of us would think. Look at verse 11 there. He says to his servants, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? So he thinks there's a spy that keeps finding him out. Verse 12, one of his servants says, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Friends, basically what we're being told here is Elisha is sort of like an Alexa of sorts. that sort of sees what's going on in your house and then just passes it on to the people that need to know. That's what's going on. And so you can imagine how this frustrates the king of Syria, that he can't get her out of him out of the way of things. So I wonder how you would respond if you found out that no matter what you say in your bedroom, it somehow gets found out and it works against you. How would you respond uh, if you knew Elisha was the one doing all this? Well, my suspicion would be, at least I, if I was an unregenerate king and I wanted to get this guy out of the way, I'd send a mercenary or two after to go strike this guy down. But that's not what the king of Syria does. The king of Syria here understands the power of God Maybe more than some of us. Take a look at verse 14. How does he respond to this Elisha knowing his plans? Verse 14, so he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So he sends a kind of division of his army on a kind of raid to the city where Elisha is. And so there they are. They've come around the city. They've surrounded this place because they're trying to take one guy down. One, Elisha. A great division of the army of the Syrians has descended upon the city of man in the middle of the night. And so I want you guys to imagine waking up in the morning of that next day and looking out the window. Verse 15, we read, when the servant of the man of God, the man of God would be Elisha, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? <laughs> this is great to imagine, right? Can you imagine rolling out of the bed? You know, you get a cup of coffee. Ah, You stretch, you walk outside. And there's an entire army, right? The entire army is looking at you. Maximus, Decimus, Meridius, and the armies of the north are around you, right? And you went to sleep thinking all was fine. <laughs> He understandably, this servant of Elisha, he's freaking out, right? He's very understandably upset. And it is right here, guys, right here where we get to the heart of the passage for today. If you say, Nathan, I don't understand what you're saying. Just go back here and look here. This is the kind of revealer of what's going on in the passages around it. We see in this passage what comes next, that seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing. Elisha believes the truth of who God is. Therefore, he sees the reality out in the world when most don't. Take a look at what happens. How does Elisha respond when the servant comes back inside and says, the armies of Maximus are all around us? How would you respond? We'll look at Elisha's response in verse 16. Do not be afraid. Now, if I'm sitting there, I'm going, Elisha, no, we need to be a little afraid, right? No, do not be afraid. In the face of an army hell-bent on destroying you, how does the man of God respond? Do not be afraid. Once again, like John Bradford, I want to get there. And we need to ask the question, how do I get there? How can we learn from God's Word how to get there? There, to have that kind of confidence in the face of such intimidation. No fear in the face of the world's intimidation. A wall of lies, we could argue, surrounding us, threatening to undo your career, threatening to undo your church, your family, your children, your life. They surround you, and they demand you to bow the knee to their God, to the interpretation of their reality, knowing that it could cost you everything. How do you get to the place where you stand with a face like flint and a spine like steel and love in your heart? And you say, I'm not afraid. How do you get there? We ask the question in order to get to the answer, how you get there. Why does he say this? Why does he say, do not be afraid? Look at verse 16 again. Do not be afraid. Why, Elisha? For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. There's the secret. Elisha is more aware of who is with them than who is against them. I wonder, Christian, if that describes you. Are you more aware of who is for you than who is against you? When you are faced with the consequences of following Christ and His good commands, are you more aware of who is with you than who is against you? See, I think this explains a lot of the anxieties in our lives as Christians, a lot of the weaknesses in our lives as Christians. in those moments when we're faced with some kind of compromise, some difficulty, some intimidation. The gospel begins to fade in the face of the enemy and their threats begin to take most of our attention. And so we're afraid. Though the victory is ours in Christ, we live as though we must bow the knee. Though Christ is ours, we are crippled in fear because we're afraid that maybe we'll make the wrong choice or maybe uh, people won't like us or our career will get derailed or our kids won't get into that school or I'll be single and alone my whole life or I'll be rejected, whatever it is. And the word that God is telling you this morning, Christian, is don't be afraid. Because those who are with us are more than who are with them. The The apostle John would write in the new Testament by those who are threatened by antichrists. He writes in first John four, four to five little children speaking to Christians. You are from God and listen to these next two words. You want to underline them. You are from God and have overcome them. It's done for because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They, the Antichrist, those whose enemy is Christ, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We, on the other hand, are from God, John says. Paul writes, of course, in Romans eight thirty one: if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? We believe the truth that Christ is king. Therefore, we see reality in light of that, no matter what may be pressed upon us. We have never, beloved, we have never been more condemned or criticized than we were in Christ on the cross. He took all of our shame. He took all of our guilt. He took all of our poor choices. He took our greatest fears upon himself and he overcame them in the resurrection. Don't be afraid. He sent the spirit to dwell with you and he will get you home to heaven. Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Get your eyes off of the opposition, beloved. Turn them to Christ. Be confident there. Stare into the face of Jesus. Believing is seeing. I believe the gospel, therefore I see the world in light of its realities and its accomplishments. We've got to learn to see that way as Elisha did. Now You might say again, well, Nathan, can you help me a little bit more? Well, friends, you believe the glory of Christ. You see the glory of Christ in the word. You meditate upon it. And then you pray. That's how you begin to put this into action. That's what we see next. Look at verse 16 and 17. Again, he says, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed. Praying is believing. And, of course, many times we doubt in prayer, don't we? I mean, I, God forbid I do from time to time. Right? Is, it, is anything happening when I pray? It just sounds like I'm talking in the air. When we pray doubting, James tells us, that the one who prays while doubting, he's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, James says. But watch Elisha. Elisha doesn't pray doubting. Elisha prays believing. Because he knows that in believing, he will come to see. In particular, his servant will come to see. He believes the Lord is king. He believes that he will be protected. Therefore, he sees it. Verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. So again, he's, he's praying on behalf of his servant that thinks all is lost. And he asked God to open his eyes to see as Elisha sees. Give him eyes to see. He believes that God is the God of hosts. He prays that his servant would see that reality. Verse 17, So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. I love this. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So this servant has his spiritual eyes awakened to see. He saw the physical Of the armies of Syria. And then his spiritual eyes. Were being given sight to see. That fire of God's protection. Was all around him. The Lord of hosts had his armies in place. And they would not fail that day. He saw it. A servant is given eyes to see the power. And the protection of the living God all around him. And friends this of course. Is exactly what happens to us that are in Christ. Same thing. Did you know that? We are blinded by our sin, blinded by the God of this world, as we'll see in a moment, and God opens up our eyes, just as God did with His servant, to see. Before Christ, we are more aware of our sin. Uh, We are more aware of our evil desires. We are more aware of just the world as it is. We don't have the spiritual sight. If you're not a Christian, that might describe you. That probably does. In fact, the Bible would say it does describe you. That you don't see the beauty, the allure, of Christ. You're not drawn by it. Why? Take a look. 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from what? From seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, right? So the unbelieving, they don't see it says there that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the greatness of the glory of the supremacy and the majesty of Christ. Therefore, they do not follow him. That explains, if you're not a Christian, that explains you. So what needs to happen? The same thing that happens when Elisha prays to for his servants. You need to be given eyes to see. The open our hearts, have to begin to see that reality. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, he's writing of Christians here. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. We're apart from Christ, beloved. We couldn't see. But God, by his infinite grace, through the preaching and the ministry of the word, gave us sight to see. And we said, Christ is great. I have offended him, but I trust him to overcome my sin. And God gives us that grace. He gives us forgiveness. And then he gives us the power, deposits the spirit within us through that sight to then live it out. Believing is seeing. Seeing reality as it is. And so, friend, if you're blind to the glory of Christ, if you are more aware of your insecurities, your losses, your sufferings, your enemies or your own sin, listen, don't be afraid. For those who are in Christ. We have more that is in us than he that is in the world. Believe that gospel reality. And by believing that, learn to see the excellencies of the risen and reigning Christ, who is the Lord of hosts, who has all power and glory. And Christian, if you're struggling to believe, or maybe if you're not a Christian and you're struggling to believe, either way, do what Elisha does here. Ask someone to pray for you. Ask someone to pray for you and say, will you pray for me that God would give me sight, that I would see the supremacy, the greatness of the glory of Christ, that I would then live in light of it. Ask someone to do that. Tell someone about your fears. Tell someone about your insecurities, whatever it is. And then ask that they would pray for you and you do the same, that that you would be given sight to see the reality, the spiritual reality that is all around us of the truth of the gospel, that you would be given sight to see that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are gods and he is ours and nothing and no one can take that away from us. Believing is seeing the power of the gospel. Well, back into Kings here. What happens next is just as glorious and powerful a testimony to the greatness of God as anything we read here. Not only does Elisha pray that his servant would see, he also prays that his enemies would not see. He prays for literal blindness to take over the encroaching enemy, and it does. Elisha, I wish I could have been here for this moment. These guys, suddenly struck him with blindness, who've come to take him down, skips out of his house, and then begins to lead them down to Samaria. And they follow him. This is great. And upon arriving to Samaria, which, by the way, would have been the enemy of Syria, upon arriving there, Elisha, who's led them there, prays again, once they get inside the gates of Samaria, to have his enemy's eyes open. Verse 20, the Lord opened their eyes, and behold, they were in Samaria. So this band of soldiers suddenly begins to see, and the second they see, they realize they're surrounded by their enemy. They're now surrounded by the Israelites. They're now vulnerable and easy to take down. At which time, the king of Israel says to Elisha, should we take these dudes down? First of all, I want you to notice when I read verse 21. Look at verse 21. How does the king refer to Elisha? He refers to him as my father. Who does the king properly understand who's really in control? The prophet. Nevertheless... The king says, all right, here they are. They're like fish in a barrel, right? Should we just smoke them? My father, shall I strike them down? Verse 22, he, Elisha answers, you shall not strike them down. Amazingly, they could have. But instead, not only do they not strike them down, do you know what Elisha does next? He calls up Panera Bread Company and caters for this enemy. And they bring in all the food and water and then he sends them away. Don't let anybody tell you, friends, that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful. This story here is evidence of God's mercy. Mercy. To be clear, God is wrathful, and he can choose to offer his wrath, which he does in the Old Testament, but God is so incredibly merciful and gracious time and again in the Old Testament. So in other words, let me give you evidence of this. God mercifully provides for his enemies and then sends his enemies away, which, of course, pictures... The New Testament counsel in Romans 12, 20 that says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That truth, that New Testament truth is illustrated best by this Old Testament reality. Yet another invitation to you, to my non-Christian friend. If you're needing mercy from God, know that he will give it if you come to him he will give it to you. Believe that he is merciful. Believe that he is gracious. Believe that he has the power to forgive you of all of your sin. And he will give you eyes to see it and walk in light of it. Believing is seeing. Well, after this amazing scene, the Assyrian king, Ben-Hadad, is evidently not moved by the mercy of Israel in sending back one little wing of his armies back. So instead of a raid, a he then begins to go into all-out war against Israel. That's what we read next. He now moves into all-out war against Israel in verse 24, where things then, they can surround the city, and now because there's now so many of them, it turns into a siege. They're surrounded, Samaria, it's a siege. And this siege of Israel, of Samaria in particular, seems to be evidence of God's judgment upon the idolaters Israelites. As we have seen how they have been merciful in letting the Israelites have let right the, uh, the Syrians go, it would be tempting to think that the Israelites are all a bunch of good guys. But remember, we've been seeing time and again, the Israelites are idolatrous. They care nothing for God. They deserve the judgment of God. And so therefore, this siege that Syria is now inflicting upon Israel seems to be the judgment from God. You say, Nathan, how do you know that? Deuteronomy twenty eight fifty two to 53. Uh, This is when Moses is warning his people when they go into the land, listen, if you don't repent and you start following idols, here's what's going to happen. Listen to Deuteronomy 28, 52 to 53. In particular, I want you to see the specificity in verse 53. As a result of this famine, they will eat the fruit of their womb, the flesh of their sons and daughters. And so it is with great disgust that we read about this very thing happening in verses 26 to 29. This unnamed king of, uh, of Israel is walking the wall of Samaria as they're being in this famine. Things are going terrible. They got no food to eat. When he comes upon a disagreement between two women, and these two women agreed to consume their presumably dead children when one of them did that, but the other one backed out. The king hears about this terrible thing, And instead of putting on the sackcloth of of repentance, the king puts on the sackcloth of blame. Blame against God. Blame against Elisha. He thinks that's the problem. No repentance. When he sees this terrible, terrible thing, this king responds by seeing not repentance. God, forgive us. God, be merciful to us. This is awful. But instead, he begins to shake his fist at God and he wants to take down the man of God. Elisha, as a result. That's how he responds. And that's how some still respond today. When judgment comes, I don't presume to know exactly when that happens, but when judgment comes upon, people can quickly shake their fist against God when they've not even given him two percent of their lives or recognized as many good gifts. But nevertheless, that's what the king of Syria does. He begins to shake his fist at God, and he's gonna go. Once again, Elisha's life is in danger. He thinks that's the problem, God's the problem, God's man is the problem, and so therefore. Therefore, we're going to take him down, and he thinks everything will be great. Kill God, kill the Christians, as it were, then things will be fine. And so once again, this king sends another messenger to take Elisha down. Now again, this is an Israelite king trying to take another Israelite down. And there's Elisha sitting in his house with his elders, and before the messenger even shows up, remember, Elisha's kind of like Alexa, as it were. And so we read in Elisha, he says in verse 32, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head. So he knows what this messenger is before he even gets there. Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is it not the sound of his master's feet behind him? In other words, Elisha knows this is a messenger of the king and he's coming to take him down. Verse 33, and while he was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So the messenger's saying, all of this mess we're going through, it's from the Lord. Why should we wait any longer? Again, they're blaming God. The captain is blaming God. The messenger's blaming God as he speaks to Elisha. And he says, why should we wait any longer? And guys, I think we'd all be lying if we weren't tempted to come to the same conclusion. How much longer must we wait for the return of the Lord? It's been 2000 years. And we are living in a kind of famine ourselves, aren't we? We've seen the the events that happen in Memphis. We hear about mass shootings all the time. You hear about persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. We hear about child abuse and sexual abuse and racism and abortion and gender and sexual confusion and wars and all these other famines. And we ask, how much longer must we wait, God? We're tempted to blame God, aren't we? Why not just do then, in the midst of that tragedy, in the midst of that just bitterness, just give up and just attack the Christians? Yet the reality is, friends, God works and moves amongst those that continue to believe through the tragedy. Take a look. Chapter 7, verse 1. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Now, he's responding to this messenger that just said that. But Elisha said to him, the messenger that wants to take his head off. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, keep in mind, what he's saying there is like inflation's going nuts, right? Because there's nothing around. And he's saying what basically the interpretation of what Elisha just said to the captain. He says, by this time tomorrow, everything's going to be common and everything's going to be cheap. In other words, what he's saying, if inflation's going to go away, like that. And the messenger responds to that message in verse 2. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? In other words, he ain't buying but he, Elisha, said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Judgment. So, friends, the captain is the, par, the messenger here. The captain is the personification of seeing is believing. So the captain's saying, like, unless I see it, I ain't buying it. <clears throat> he doesn't see it, therefore he doesn't believe it. Whereas Elisha, right here, who believes in the word of the Lord, the prophecy of the Lord, sees that it will happen in faith, though it seems impossible. The captain doesn't believe, so therefore he doesn't see. Elisha does believe, therefore he does see the truth of the word. And we have to admit, right? Like these miracles, Elisha's prophecy would have been hard to believe at the time, right? Would have been hard. But again, believing is seeing the word of the Lord as truth, as reality. And friends, what comes next is something out of a Monty Python movie combined with some cinematic drama, combined into one movie. What comes next? Let me walk you through this. This is great. In verse three, we learn about four men who are lepers that are sitting at the gate of Samaria. And they begin to see, they begin to have a conversation with themselves. They're lepers, skin disease, they're probably going to die. They say to themselves, listen, if we stay here because they're outside the city, because they're unclean, if we stay out here, we're going to die. If we go back into town, there's a bunch of, there's famine in there, we're going to die in there. So why not just walk out here to the Syrian siege and maybe they'll give us some food? Not a bad plan, right? (laughs) So they decide they're going to go. These four dudes, leprous dudes, they're going to go out. Verse 5, at twilight, at dark, they start heading over to the Syrian camp. We can imagine them walking, tiptoeing into the camp, starving, skins, fingers, maybe falling off, whatever, scared, full of adrenaline, coming into the Syrian camp. And when they step in quietly into that Syrian camp, what do they see But no army present. Nobody's there. All their stuff's there, but no army is there. What's the first question you're asking? What happened? Where'd they go? Well, take a look. Verse (laughs) 6. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. So they thought they heard something out in the distance, and they concluded that the Israelites hired some external armies to come and get them. And so they pieced out as quick as they could and left everything as it was. The Lord is king, friends. And you say, Nathan, I don't know about this. Listen, you've had this happen to you. You've done the same thing these guys have done. Right? You ever been lying down in the night and somebody says to you, did you hear that? What happens? You freak out, don't you? Like you can't go back to sleep. Heart starts racing. Do you hear (gasps) that? There it was again. And you get up, right? And you go around and you get a baseball bat and you start walking around. You kind of move, right? Same thing happens here. They hear something and they begin to conclude all kinds of otherwise irrational stuff and they make irrational decisions by the grace and the power of God. That's how powerful the Lord is. And by the way, did you notice he didn't need horses and chariots to defeat his enemies? And by the way, did you also notice that he didn't have to kill a single soldier to defeat them? That's how powerful the Lord is. Now back to our four leprous friends. These guys are great. I hope they trusted in Christ. We read in verse 8, what do these guys do? What would you do? You're leprous. You had not eaten in days, right? And you see all of this stuff laying out. Well, these dudes start partying. That's exactly what they do. They go into one tent and it turns into a Syrian nightclub. I'm not kidding. You know, there's... They're eating. They start carrying silver. They start carrying gold. They are just got all this. Mm, this is great. This is great. And they're just going on. They're enjoying it all. They go from one tent into another tent. They're getting bread. They're getting silver. They're getting gold. They're carrying it back. They're hiding it. This is great, man. This is amazing. But one guy says, there always has to be one with a conscience, right? <laughs> one guy says in verse 9, and he's right to be clear. We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Okay, so now imagine what comes next. These guys go back to the city of Samaria and they go up to the gatekeepers that are standing there, right? They still got the music ringing in their ears. They're eating the bread, right? They're like, listen, listen, we found out they're gone. You see the silver and gold, it's all here. You got food, we got everything, man, it's great. Gapers like, you serious? Like, I'm totally serious, man, it's all back there. So the gatekeepers, they go back to the king of Samaria and they tell him, listen, they're gone. King of Samaria says, are you sure? He says, yeah. King of Samaria starts thinking, no, they're just trying to draw us out and then they're going to get us. So the king of Israel then sends out a couple horsemen to make sure that the coast is clear and it was. And then guess what happens? All of Israel runs out of the gate. To go get the food, to go get the silver, to go get the gold and all of the donkeys, whatever. And notice what the word says. Verse 16. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel. In other words, the word was fulfilled. God's word came true. And also, second thing to note, that the word was fulfilled. Also, in keeping with the word, we learn that the unbelieving captain in the midst of the rush is overcome and dies. Second fulfillment of the word. And guys, I want you to think about this. We New Covenant gospel-believing Christians, I want you to think about this. Does this story sound a little familiar to you? Four lepers, as good as dead, find treasure that they didn't earn. And those four lepers come to a city of people in poverty and told them good news of an unexpected victory where treasure troves of that victory could be found. And all of that happened according to the word of the Lord. They did it. The Lord did it. And in the midst of that, unbelievers were judged. Ever heard that story before? Friends, this is the story of gospel. This is the story of the gospel. It has been said that evangelism is nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar to where to find food. That's what happens here. And so I stand before you, friends, as one of those poor lepers that was as good as dead. In fact, I was, Nathan Knight was, apart from Christ, dead in my sins. I stumbled upon the wealth of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He took the judgment that I deserved just as much as those Israelites. He, Jesus, bore my sin. He took my unbelief that I should have bore. I should have been like that captain killed in my unbelief. Instead, Jesus took it on my behalf. He died in my place on the cross. And because he did, by grace, through faith, I now have in the finished work of Christ, just as God sent those armies away, now in Christ, all of my enemies of my sin has now been led away. And in the power of the resurrection... I now have the wealth of God, all by his grace. All of my leprosy of my sin, taken away. All of my famine from eating food in the wrong places, taken away. I have a treasure trove in Christ. I can eat of him. He's now my bread, and I never hunger or thirst again. Now, in Christ, having gone and seen that treasure in Christ, I now have his righteousness. I have his love. I have his relationship. The relationship that God gave to the Son is now mine. I'm an adopted son. And all of it, I get stuff better than silver and gold. All because of the grace of God and the power of God working through his word and the son of God. This is what was done for us. And so I stand here as a leper telling you what Christ has done. And then you're the gatekeepers. And I'm telling you, there's treasure in those hills. If you go to Christ, he will do the same for you. This is the gospel. This, friend, is the day of good news. The victory is his, the wealth of his. It's yours to endure if you would repent of your sin and trust him and follow him. He can now be your wall of fire around you to protect you. His armies can now protect you. He can be your bread of life that can feed you. He can overcome your leprosy, whatever leprosy is in your life. His word, more than Elisha's, is powerful enough to sustain you if you have eyes to see it. Pray that you would. This is the day of good news. And for you, beloved church family, this is our story. You were lepers as good as dead. God gave you victory in Christ. He gave you bread. He gave you silver. He gave you gold in Jesus, in the gospel. You would be wrong to keep it to yourself. Go tell somebody like these guys did. Don't keep it to yourself. Come to the same conclusions that the lepers did. It would be wrong. This is a day of good news. I need to go tell somebody. Go tell, call a family member. Call a friend. Go tell somebody. Tell them the wealth, the victory that is found in Christ. Believe. Well, just a couple more stories briefly in our passage. A couple more stories that show us that believing is seeing the reality of the word. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. We read about a familiar gal. Do you guys remember the Shunammite woman? back? Her, remember her back in chapter 4? This is the gal. Remember, this is the gal that built the Airbnb on top of her house. Remember her? So that Elisha could come and hang out, right? This is the gal also that had the baby. died. baby died. Elisha comes in, spreads out over him, raises from the dead. Same gal. Well, she, we learn in chapter 8, verse 2, she heads out of town, underline this, according to the word of the man of God, She heads out of town, Elisha tells her to go, she leaves, and she's in the land of the Philistines for seven years. She's hanging out with the Philistines, left her house, left the Airbnb too. I don't know, maybe Elisha took up, I don't know, where he was. But anyway, she's gone, seven years, she's out of town. And then over that seven years, after the seven years are over, she comes back into town. And she goes to the king of Israel to plead for her house and her land back. We think this is King Jehoram. Uh, Ahab's son, an otherwise wicked king. And strangely, this wicked otherwise king is interested in the miracles of Elisha. And about that time, and by the way, guess who's sharing it with her? You can see it down there. It's Gehazi, right? Gehazi, maybe he's still leprous. I don't know. But nevertheless, there he is. He's telling of of all people, Elisha's former right-hand man, telling this wicked king about all the powerful wonders of Elisha. And guess who walks through the door as he's doing that? The Shunammite woman. And so the king of Israel sees her, hearing these powerful words about what Elisha has done, and he gives her her land and her house back. Friends, that's justice. That's restoration. We believe in justice because we see it in the gospel. Therefore, we advocate for justice to those who, like the Shunammite woman, need it. This is what Christians should do. When we see the injustices of the world because we believe in the word of the Lord and we see by that word, we advocate for restoration. We advocate for justice to those in need. That's what Christians do. But then the final passage here ends with the murder of the evil Syrian king Ben-Hadad. If you guys remember way back in chapter 2 Kings chapter 1, remember King Ahab, The Israelite king, remember, he falls and wonders if he's going to die. And remember, he goes and seeks out a pagan god. Well, here we see that the pagan Ben-Hadad, when he is sick and he thinks he's going to die, instead he goes and seeks out good counsel. Go ask Elisha. He sends this guy, Hazel, his guy, to go see if he's going to die because he's sick. All right. Now, remember, Hazel, that should sound familiar to some of you guys. Remember, Hazel, way back in 1 Kings 19, that was the guy that Elijah was supposed to go and anoint, king. So that's the guy that's now the messenger. He's coming to Elisha to see if Ben-Hadad's going to die from this sickness. He shows up to Elisha, and and he asks him, is is Ben-Hadad going to die? And Elisha says to Hazel, listen, he's going to die, but you tell him it's going to be fine. Tell him it's going to be fine, but you need to know he's going to die. And there we look in verse 11. After he tells him that news, Elisha stares into the face of Hazel. Because he begins to see, because he believes he begins to see the evil that's going to come when Hazel takes the throne. But as he's staring at him and Elisha begins to cry, he's not said a word to him. Elisha begins to weep. Hazel asks why he's weeping and Elisha tells him he's weeping because he knows that he's going to go on to rule terribly. He's going to be an evil king. And look at verse 12. Don't miss this. Elisha tells Hazel about his own rule that's about to start. He says that he will kill young men and dash little ones to pieces. Hazel's going to kill babies. He's weeping. Children are precious friends in the eyes of God, created in his image, and it is evil of the highest sort to kill babies. We saw that before earlier in the message. The killing of babies is a cause for weeping. That was true then, and friends, that's still true today. The destruction of innocent lives is evil of the highest sort. And we as Christians have to say that. Even while we endure this world, we still continue to fight against the hazels of the world, kings and queens that are endeavoring to, as we read there in verse 11, verse 12. Killing young men and dashing little ones to pieces. The Fight for justice continues. Christians are people who believe by seeing the truth about God's rule in the world. We have been given eyes to see this morning. That the fires of the gospel protect all around us. We've been given eyes to see he is merciful to his enemies this morning. We've been given eyes to see that he can defeat his enemies with little more than a sound in their ear. We've been given eyes to see that while he performs that victory, he gives spoils to beggars who are then empowered to spread that good news of victory to other beggars. We've been given eyes to see justice to the oppressed. And here, amidst all of this good news, while we know this victory, we are also given eyes to see the evil that will come at the hands of evil leaders that hate God and his gospel. Therefore, we also, because we believe by seeing, we see injustices and we weep. That's what it means to be a Christian. We don't wait to see in order to believe. We believe by seeing the Lord's word and believing that word and acting upon that word, knowing that all will happen in accordance with that word, because we believe that Christ, who is the word, is king. Even when all else seems impossible. And so that's the call for us today, beloved. To see, to by believe the word and by believing that word, seeing its realities out in the world when most of the world doesn't see it. And so, beloved, I plead with you this morning. Stop believing the world's words. Stop being oriented by what they tell you you need. Stop believing the lie that evil and injustice get the last word. That is not true. Believe Christ. See him in faith. The true and lasting and greater Elisha, who has promised us a wall of fire around us to protect us and get us home to heaven. In Christ, no matter what enemies swarm around us, we must learn to see as Elisha did. We must learn to fix our eyes not on our enemies, but on Christ. In him, we are more than conquerors. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. He has promised us that his church will advance and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we are seeing that so clearly in these days. He has told us that vengeance is his. It is not for us to repay. Vengeance is his. We trust him. We believe that. He will have justice roll. With but a whisper, we have to remember, in the ears of Christ's enemies, he will send away all of our enemies with but a whisper. He will, and we poor lepers, we will go and take the spoils in the new heavens and new earth, and we will feast upon them forever. Like the Shunammite woman, justice will come and will be restored to all that is due to come to us by God's amazing grace. Though the hazels of the world slay, yet shall we live, because Christ is the resurrection and the life. Believe him and therefore learn to see by him. And so, beloved, I know that it's hard sitting inside of these walls of Samaria. We are surrounded by so much famine. So much death, so much judgment all around us. I know it's tempting to give up like that captain and say, why should I wait any longer? But remember, beloved, look at me. Remember, he promises that he will come like a thief in the night. We are living high in inflation, as it were. But tomorrow, Christ will come, and we will have the riches of his rewards forever. Keep waiting. It will come quickly. Learn to see that way. Christ is won The victory is ours. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing the glory of the gospel, not the fleeting glory of man. The Lord is king. So I say to you, beloved church family, be of good comfort, brothers and sisters. We shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. Let's pray together. God, forgive us for the many ways in which we are like Elisha's servant. Forgive us for the many ways in which we don't believe, that we claim to. We ask, as Elisha did of his servant, in the face of whatever enemies around whatever we're threatened by, we ask, God, that you would open our eyes to see. In particular, that you would, the power of the gospel, you would open our eyes to see that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Help us to look wide-eyed at the wrongness, the injustices of the world. But help us to believe by seeing through them to a day when all of our enemies will run away, be defeated. And we, by the power and the glory of Christ, will get to feast at the table with Jesus and behold him face to face. Our Lord and our great King, in whose name we pray. Amen.